Well, good morning. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to that ever-familiar book, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 54 this morning as we jump back into Luke's Gospel after a little bit of a break from it. I uh, hope that you and your family have had a good um, few weeks uh, of um, celebrating Christmas and New Year's together. It's good to be back together this morning on this uh, Lord's Day that we have together, starting a new year together, and all the rest, and so we're thankful. Uh, I do want to just say a quick word of thanks to uh, our setup team, our audio-visual team, our worship ministry team, our first impressions team, our hospitality team, and whoever I missed. Uh, they are so generous in their service, uh, and when we have... Uh, changes to the schedule or changes to our setup, which happened this week, midweek. We weren't expecting that. Uh, they're just so uh, faithful in how they respond and get things done. Uh, no complaints. Um, and so just th very thankful for these brothers and sisters who serve so faithfully each and every week, even when things are not normal. And uh, I'm thankful for each of you, thankful for the way that you serve this church body so well. And we're grateful. All right, let's look together at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. These are the words of the Lord inspired by the Holy Spirit. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others." Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent... To the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it would be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering." As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to hear it this morning. Help us to apply it. Help us to understand what you are warning us of here in light of these Pharisees. So, Father, we ask now that you would help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the greatest threat to the church today? 
Think about that a moment. What, if you were to write it down, what is the greatest threat to the church today? The answer might very well depend on where you live. For many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or somewhere within the 1040 window of India and Asia and all of that, that area, part of the world, it could very well be persecution. It's a great threat to the church. It's costly to be a Christian in many places, costly with your life. For others, namely in the West, it may be secularism or cultural influence of some kind or theological erosion. On and on we can go. We know that throughout history, the church has tended to face innumerable external threats to its existence and to its calling. We could look at numerous threats throughout the history of the church. And yet, we've seen how the church has tended, by God's grace, to weather these external threats, these external uh, hindrances, if you will, to the gospel, to the church, and to God's people being who they are, they've tended to weather that. But the one thing that continues to plague Christians is not so much external influences, though those certainly happen, but internal threats. One of the threats that has been an issue from the beginning is what we could call the threat of moralism. Not in the sense of caring about right or wrong. It's certainly important that we do that. But this idea that our fundamental acceptance before God is something that we can somehow achieve on our own moral performance. It sounds something like this. Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good person. That is moralism at its best summarized. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm a decent person. Surely God would see that and be okay with me. This idea of being accepted before God based upon our moral performance is certainly something that exists in culture and in the world today, but I'm afraid that we see it very prevalent in the Christian church. Back in August, an article was published at the Gospel Coalition entitled, The Majority of American Christians Don't Believe the Gospel. Kind of eye-catching. They were looking at, this one author was looking at numbers taken from a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. The results found in that survey concluded that many American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. In that survey, it was listed that some 48% of the adults surveyed believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will, quote, earn a place in heaven. Only one-third of adults disagreed with that. And further in that survey, a majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, some 52% also accepted a works-oriented means to God's acceptance, 
even those people, even those Christians, quote-unquote Christians, who are associated with churches whose official doctrine states that eternal salvation comes only through embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. This included close to half of all adults associated with Pentecostal movement, 46%. Mainline Protestant churches, 44%. And evangelical churches, 41%. That would be us. As nearly as two-thirds of Catholics, some 70%. Not surprising there. The point being, you can look at surveys, and surveys are what they are. They do have their limits. They do have their... their, their um, you can make numbers say about anything you want them to say, right? But it's telling that an increasing number of Americans, and more specifically American quote-unquote Christians, hold to some type of moralistic works-based salvation. Meaning, if I do enough good, God will save me or let me into heaven. Now, this way of thinking is not new. This is not a modern-day problem. This is not a modern-day threat. It has historical roots. And one of those historical roots we're going to look at today is found right here in Luke chapter 11, and you see it most prominently expressed and displayed and demonstrated through Pharisees. It's hard to look at y'all because I'm going to get whiplash today when we're in the room. So I'm just trying to adjust, that's all. If I look nervous or something, that's why. Um, as we want to look at these historical roots, the context that we have for Luke chapter 11 is that a Pharisee, a religious leader, has invited Jesus over for dinner and then immediately judges him. Why? At the beginning of the passage, because Jesus did not wash himself, wash his hands. Now, obviously, it's not that the Pharisee worked for the CDC and was overly concerned about COVID. It was because he was infected with a ritualistic, work-centered approach to religion. And this text that we look at today, it's a lengthier passage, these woes to the Pharisees and lawyers. This passage is a rebuke from Jesus to the Pharisees, to these religious leaders, calling them out for their moralistic, ritualistic, works-based approach to salvation and thus serves as instruction and warning to us today. So in this rebuke, Jesus does several things here, and I'm basically going to divide this passage up into two, two main points, although the first point is going to have a lot of subpoints. Basically, we're going to see these characteristics, these marks of external or moralistic or works-based religion, and then the solution. So we're going to see what, what this looks like in practice as Jesus rebukes and responds to the Pharisees, and then at the very end, we're going to see the solution to it. So what's the right alternative there at the end? First of all, characteristics of external religion. We know that every religion in the world except the Christian faith is built upon some kind of ritualistic, moralistic approach to quote-unquote salvation. Christianity is the only religion in the world ever that does not have that as it's some, some kind of central tenet. And yet, that's kind of bled over into Christianity oftentimes, which is unfortunate. It's kind of what we're wanting to respond to today. So, 
all other religions have some kind of prescribed list of practices for a worshiper to perform, to do, so they can escape judgment and inherit blessing. And that's exactly what we see here in the Pharisees as they espouse their own practice through their condemnation of Jesus. And it comes out here in this Pharisee's response to, to Jesus not washing his hands. You see that? While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Right? Let's look at several characteristics of these pharisaical, moralistic folk. First of all, one of the characteristics we see about moralistic external religion is that it creates extra-biblical standards. It creates extra-biblical standards. There was no command in the Old Testament law that dictated for one to wash his or her hands or some kind of ceremonial cleansing before dinner, except you did have a command for the priest when they entered the tent of meeting to burn a food offering upon the altar. There was a requirement for them to go through some kind of ceremonial washing. But other than that, the Old Testament is silent about any kind of washing, any kind of ceremonial washing. But the Pharisees had now expanded this and made it a requirement beyond what the Old Testament actually taught or commanded. So Jesus sits down to eat without washing and is immediately a lawbreaker in their sight. So you see the dilemma. Jesus certainly knew the law, and had it been a requirement in the law, Jesus would have obeyed the law. Because he does. He's not a lawbreaker. He came for lawbreakers, but he's not a lawbreaker. In fact, you'll see this more clearly in, in Mark's gospel in chapter 7. This is kind of unpacking this, this tradition that they had. It says, Mark chapter 7, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come to, from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the, what, tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so you see their mindset. When Jesus sits down at the table and he doesn't wash, he's breaking the tradition of the elders, which they held just as equal to, if not above, the Old Testament law. So in their mind, Jesus is a lawbreaker. They're, they're, they're holding him content, in contempt for breaking a law, a law that didn't exist, but one certainly that existed in their structure. You see, they had developed not only what was clear in the Old Testament law, but they had gone well beyond and above the Old Testament law in what's called the tradition of the elders as something that was to be pursued and followed in order for one to be right with God. You want to be right with God, obey these commands and all of these traditions of the elders, and you'll be right with God. Now, we would, when we think about these extra-biblical standards we would be foolish to think that this isn't a danger in the church today. I mean, in some ways, we all establish standards 
in our minds. If we don't verbalize it or if we don't express it in some way, we all have some kind of standard that we kind of live by that's, that's maybe beyond Scripture or is not clearly stated in Scripture. We all will, from time to time, establish standards beyond the written word, as a litmus test even. We do it to ourselves, we do it with others. It's this attitude that can, can easily come about within the lives of Christians and within the church that, that says, one, either you're not really a Christian or you're not a serious Christian if you don't do X. Both are bad, but, but some would say, well, you can't really be a Christian or you can't be a serious Christian if you don't do X. Sorry, Siri. There we go. A book came out several years ago called Accidental Pharisee. It was author Larry Osborne says this about what he calls accidental Pharisees. He says, accidental Pharisees are people like you and me who despite the best of intentions and desire to honor God, unwittingly end up pursuing an overzealous model of faith that sabotages the work of the Lord we think we're serving. That's a good overall assessment of what happens. It's not that we're truly Pharisees in like living out all of the tradition of the elders just like the Pharisees did. No, we've got our own book. Accidental Pharisees, meaning that, that there is this right desire to please God. There is this desire to, to somehow approach the Christian faith with faithfulness and, and to seek to honor the Lord, but we have somehow now become accidental Pharisees in that we've added a whole lot of other things in our zeal that actually undermines and sabotages the gospel. He goes on in that book to identify several areas Christians can navigate towards a pharisaical approach to Christianity. Taking good things, good things that we can and should do it from time to time, but making these things ultimate things. You can't be a real Christian or a serious Christian unless you are somehow labeled this. And so he gives some examples. For, for example, radical Christians, those who tend to see generosity as the leading indicator of what it means to truly follow Jesus. The required metric is a generous and simple lifestyle. If you don't live simply enough, you aren't generous enough, therefore you aren't Christian enough. Or there's the missional Christians. They want to know what you're doing to help fulfill the mission of God. If you start up a soup kitchen, volunteer at a tutor at risk program for kids, or move your family from the suburbs to the inner city, then you'll no, have no problem earning this badge and therefore being a truly serious Christian because you're missionally minded. And if that didn't get you, how about the gospel-centered Christians? They like to determine spiritual maturity by means of their theological grid, using big words, careful distinctions, and nuanced debate. Again, all of these things are in and of themselves right and fine, but they become ultimate. You can't be truly a Christian or a serious Christian unless you are marked by these things. We could go on and on other ways. If you're not homeschooling, you're not a faithful Christian. If you're not voting a certain way, if you're not engaged in every cause of social injustice, if you're not using a certain Bible translation, then you're either not a real Christian or a serious Christian. On and on we can go. Many of these things are fine and good. 
Many of these things are things that we ought to give careful thought and attention to and, and walk our way through. But listen, you, when, we, when we commit to these things, these are not gospel-level things. You are not saved by the things that you do and the things that you engaged in or by the way that you nuance a, a discussion or debate. You are saved by the grace of God alone. And so I use all of those examples just to, in, to point how, how easy we can, we can tip over to that pharisaical approach to the Christian faith, even taking good godly things, but making them ultimate things. See, that's what the Pharisees do. They create extra-biblical standards for righteousness. They take good things, make them ultimate. Again, brothers and sisters, to be clear, there are imperatives that we are accountable to obey in the Bible. But these imperatives, these commands, are given to us not as a way to justify ourselves before God, but as a demonstration of our love for God as one who has been justified by the work of Christ. So we need to be careful of what kind of requirements we require of ourselves and others. God's standard is already beyond our ability. Why would we add to it? His standard does not need improving. Perfection doesn't need improving. And so we don't need to add these extra-biblical standards as a litmus test for serious-minded Christianity or genuine Christianity. We're going to talk more about that as we continue. Number two, characteristic, uh, the second characteristic of a moralistic approach to salvation is that it misses the true source of holiness. We've got a long way to go in a short amount of time, don't we? Verse 39, Jesus responds... And he shows just how absurd their tradition and rituals were. He says there in verse 39, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms to those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So he goes on to teach here that it does you no good to be outwardly, quote-unquote, clean when you are full of greed and sin inwardly. See, the Pharisees were all concerned, over-concerned about appearance. They were more concerned with the appearance of holiness than they were with actual holiness. And therefore, they created a false standard of holiness so they could measure it and feel holy. But friends, holiness is not an outside-only reality. Holiness is an inside-out reality. It begins in the heart. It starts in the affections of who you are in your heart. Jesus uses the example of alms here to, to drive that point home. The giving, of, the giving of alms to the poor was a common and important custom of that day, and Jesus here points to that to confront their lack of holiness. Notice what he says. He says, um, but give alms, that they would have heard that, as something that is important, something they should do as a good thing, and it was, but give alms as those things that are within. So he's, 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 he's using that kind of to get them back to a, examining their own hearts. They need to give alms to the things within, meaning they needed to be concerned with, the, with their heart. If they would give attention to their hearts, 
then they would be clean, but they don't. They, they only care about what appearances are. I think that's important for us to hear as well, isn't it? Holiness is something that we are all called to pursue. Without holiness, Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. But we need to understand where true holiness originates. The gospel is not be holy, become holy, and be saved. The, the gospel is calling us to understand our lack of holiness, to give ourselves to the one who is holy and his means of grace through Christ, so that we can be presented holy. Holiness does not originate externally. It's not, it's not built with ritual or practice. It originates in the heart. And Jesus is teaching us here that we need to be more concerned with being holy than merely appearing holy. Listen, just as an example, you can, you can post pictures of your Bible and coffee mug on Instagram all day long, but that doesn't make you holy. You may look holy. You may make the rest of us feel guilty because we aren't that diligent. But it doesn't make you holy. You see, it's missing the, the true source of holiness. The true source of holiness is an internal reality. Friends, that confronts us all to some degree, doesn't it? What things are you seeking in your life simply to appear holy? What, what are those external, outside of the cup kinds of things that you are depending upon to make yourself look like someone you truly aren't? You see, their approach misses the true source of holiness, the true point of it. Number three, it majors on the minors. This approach to redemption, this approach to faith through the Pharisees, through their works-based moralistic approach, majors on the minors. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees. Here Jesus moves from a stern rebuke to pronouncing a woe. I heard one pastor say, any time you hear a woe, you should say woe, right? That's what it's intended for, is to get your attention. A woe was a strong denunciation of sin. He's calling them out on several things here, but in verse 42, he's calling them out on prioritizing some practices, tithing, while neglecting other matters, justice and the love of God. Now, the Pharisees, they were, they were, they were quite solid on this, this tithing which the Old Testament did command in Deuteronomy chapter 14. You see it in Deuteronomy 26. Even, even tithing of your herbs and plants and spices and things. Now a tithe is a tenth. A tithe, some Christians don't understand this, a tithe is not a word used for general giving. So if you say I'm giving, but I'm not giving a tenth of my income, it's not technically a tithe, you're giving. But a tithe is a tenth. And so they were, they were rigid in their practice of giving a tenth of their their, their income, their resources, their plants, even down to these small, these small herbs. And they were diligent to make sure that they would do these kinds of things. And the problem that Jesus has here with them is not that they, ele is not that they tithed, but that they elevated this while ignoring other important matters of justice and the love of God. He, he doesn't say, stop tithing and start doing these things. It doesn't say that, does it? He? he says, but what are you Pharisees? For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Like what John Piper said about this text, he said, so Jesus was not saying big issues like justice are important and little issues like money are less important. 
He says justice is a money issue. He was saying, get your heart right about loving God and about caring, people, uh, uh, caring about how people are treated, and then the details of how you handle your money, including your tithing, will be praiseworthy and not a religious camouflage for selfishness. He's condemning the attitude where one becomes so preoccupied with their outward religious rituals, tithing in this case, while neglecting other religious responsibilities of fighting against injustice and loving God. He says, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The, 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 the Pharisees were experts. They were like the model that you would look to in maintaining external elements of the law, majoring on the minors while neglecting other things. And so they were experts in maintaining the external elements of the law while neglecting the essence of the law. Love God, love neighbor. The love of God and the love of neighbor is the essence of the law. Therefore, these things are what ought to, to compel us. Listen, let me try to make this as an example for us to, to try to, to relate to. If, if you are more concerned that your giving statement at the end of the year from the church is $100 short than you are with those who are hungry, homeless, orphaned, or oppressed, then you resemble a pharisaical heart. God cares what's on your giving statement, most certainly. But he also cares what you do with your time and resources that aren't on that statement. That's the point that he's making here is that you can't depend on these things or, or pick and choose things that you want to prop yourself up and make yourself, make yourself look good before God and others while neglecting a whole series of other things that we're called to embrace and pursue. Our ritualistic approach to faith often misses these important matters. Love of God, love of neighbor are the fruits of a transformed heart. The Pharisees, they didn't resemble that. The only thing that they resembled was a love for self. Number four. Fourth characteristic is that a moralistic approach is fueled by pride. Verse 43 what are you Pharisees? For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees loved to be acknowledged. They wanted to be seen as important. They had developed this elitist mentality. And at the end of the day, they wanted to be honored for their example. They thought little of God and much of themselves. Had a reputation to maintain. Indeed, it's getting to the really core of their problem, this, this idea of pride. They, they cared more about what man thought of them than what God thought of them. You know, friends, it's quite possible to find ourselves in the position of using our faith, using good religious practices as a means toward our own selfish end. Bible reading, prayer, fasting, all, you know, we just go on down the list of spiritual disciplines. All good things, great things, important things, God-given things. But we can often take those and manipulate them towards our own selfish end to make us look more than we truly are or completely miss the point of them. These spiritual disciplines are, are a means to make us more like Jesus, not a means to make us look important to others. We all, to some degree, want to appear different than we truly are, don't we? 
I mean, if everyone could see your thoughts, desires, motives, your heart, I think all of us would be mortified. Think about social media and different kinds of platforms. There's, you know, I'm still fascinated, and, and I've taken the beloved selfie as well, but we're we fascinated with these selfie pictures. And then there's that, that aspect on the app, right, the, the, the filter. We probably take a picture and probably take 20 pictures, and then we pick the one that looks the best, and we spend another 20 minutes applying certain filters to these pictures to make us look like a million dollars when we finally go to post it. Right? And this is what so many of us as Christians do. Just in the way that we approach the spiritual disciplines or, or the Christian life in general, we, we want to apply the holy filter or the I'm significant filter to our lives in various ways so that we are accepted and appreciated and affirmed. But here's the reality, friends. God sees right through those filters. He sees the real you. He sees the true condition of our hearts. He sees us for who we truly are. Pharisees were experts at attempting to appear holy, and maybe they did before the public, before, before the, the community at large, but before God, before Jesus, as he's sitting here confronting them, not so much. We often care way too much more about what others think of us than what the Lord desires from us. Their approach to this moralism was fueled by pride. Number next, five. Fifth characteristic is that it's a snare to others. Now, I'm going to combine several verses here. Verses 44 through all the way down to verse 52, you, you see this. He says in verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In Judaism, you would be considered unclean if you walked over an unmarked grave, even if you didn't know it. If you walked over an unmarked grave, you would be unclean. And so Jesus says that the Pharisees are like an unmarked grave in that they serve as conductors of spiritual uncleanness because they do not model true spirituality. The Pharisees actually thought, they believed. They actually believed they were leading people into the way of true holiness, but the fact was that they were leading people into further defilement. They were a snare to others. When we, whenever we set up extra biblical standards for ourselves and others, we are, we are doing great harm. Legalism. Legalism is a deadly snare to Christ's church. It's not only harmful to you, but it's harmful to those around you, those who you impact. Whenever we set these unbiblical, extra-biblical standards up. But if you keep reading, so you see there that in the rebuke to the Pharisees, the woe to the Pharisees, they were like unmarked graves impacting people. Not just themselves, but, but people. And then one of the lawyers spoke up, one of the scribes says to him, Teacher, in uh, saying what you just said to the Pharisees, you've insulted us too. And Jesus says, You want some? I'll give you some. Verse 46, What do you lawyers also? Now that you've spoken up, while we're at it, let's, let's include you. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They, they loved to 
to call people out to obedience and responsibility while having no, no desire or plan to obey the very same things themselves. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So your witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. The blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I will tell you it would be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So he says to these lawyers, these scribes, these teachers, verse 46, you burden the people with the law without helping them. They don't do a thing to help them. They they, they just add burden upon burden upon burden to them, and and they, they don't do anything to help them. Verses 47 through 51, you you bury the prophets just like your ancestors did. The the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree is what Jesus is saying. Just like they killed the prophets, just like they denied them, you are doing the same. And then verse 52, as he wraps this up, he says, At the end of the day, you've taken away the key of knowledge, thus blocking the way to salvation. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Some of the strongest words of condemnation Jesus ever gives is given here. He's calling out the Pharisees, he's calling calling out the lawyers for their failure to see the truth, to live the truth, and to point others to it. Friends, what Jesus is saying here is that this moralistic external religion is a devastating trap. And what I think he wants us to hear and what I see as a warning and instruction to us is that these kinds of pharisaical things, the church is not immune to them. We see it alive and well often in the church. It's a deadly trap. And not only will it take you down, but it will take down others with you. And so Jesus condemns the Pharisees and scribes for being the very opposite of what they actually think. Again, remember that the problem that they had was that they believed they were right. The Pharisees weren't doing all of this knowing all along that this was the wrong way. They were just kind of duping people out of, out of salvation. They actually believed what they were doing was the right thing to do. They were deceived in that way. The problem with approaching the Lord like a Pharisee is not only are you wrong, you will end up condemned. In an effort to appease God, to present yourself as something you aren't, you only heap up for yourself more and more condemnation. Not only for you, but even for those around you, your friends, your family. Friends, what you believe and how you live is never isolated to you and you alone. It's a trap. It's a stumbling block. It's a snare to others. So you see the, 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 the reason Jesus rebukes them. We could say so much more about all of that he does, but, but these are the marks, these are the characteristics that stand out here about this approach to faith, uh, uh, this approach to salvation that is based upon some kind of moralism. It only leads to ruin in the end. So what is the solution? Simply put, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The truth of the matter is, is that we are all sinners. All of us have broken God's laws and God's commands. Down to the very last one, all of us have. There's no way for us to cover up our sin, our pride, our selfishness, our hypocrisy, our legalism, and all other sins by religious ritual. When does it become enough? At what point? Is it the next prayer? Is it the next Bible verse you read? Is it the next offering you give? Is it the next attendance you make at church that, that kind of sets the record straight? For you only fall back again? I mean, if we were dependent, this is a miserable way to live. There's no way for us to, to clean ourselves up through religious ritual, through moralism, through external religion, and yet there are countless millions of quote-unquote Christians that are attempting to do this every single day. Friends, there's not enough confessions. There's not enough ritual. There's not enough that you can ever do to make yourself right and clean and pure before a holy God. The only way for us to find rescue from our pharisaical ways is to put our hope in the very one the Pharisees ultimately rejected. And, providentially, it was a former Pharisee that actually said it best in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He didn't say Jesus came into the world to save lawkeepers. There are none. He didn't say Jesus came into the world to save those who kept to the tradition of the elders. He said he came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Friends, salvation does not come through religious ritual. Sin is not overturned or overcome by superficial external ways. Sin is dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ and through faith resting upon his finished work. This is good news. If you're a Christian, which I would assume many of you are, most of you should be, at least you say you are, this is good news. This is overwhelmingly encouraging news. And so it should encourage you, it should cause you to rejoice and be glad in God. It should cause us to be reminded that God has graciously given that which we never could have earned or deserved. Despite our best attempts, which are pathetic, despite our worst moments, despite all that we are in sin, God gave his son for our sake. He came and he lived a life of perfect righteousness. He lived a life of perfect holiness in total compliance to the law of God. And yet he died on a cross to bear the burden for our sin and our shame and our guilt so that we, by his grace, through the cleansing blood of his, his atonement and because of his perfect righteousness, by his grace, we are now presented as those who are in Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, this is what you look like before God, you look holy. Not because you are, 
but because of Jesus, because He is. He has cleansed you and He has clothed you in His righteousness and He holds you fast to the end. Blameless, secure, righteous before God. Christians, that should just give you every ounce of joy, motivation to go live your life for King Jesus this week. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here, if you're listening to us and and you hear these things, you say, you know what, I I think I've been depending upon these works kinds of things. I think I've been depending on doing good enough before God. And I realize today that I can't do do enough to, to earn my way into heaven. Friend, we would just ask you and plead with you today to quit trying to earn your way to heaven and rest in the fullness of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for people just like you. And then by that same grace, He then gives you a new heart. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you will want to go and live in these kinds of ways. Not as a means to salvation, but as fruit of your salvation. Brothers and sisters, there are many threats to the gospel and to the church today. Yet it's often this accepted idea that somehow we can just earn our way in heaven. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. That will get you nowhere before a holy God. Let it be heard loud and clear today in this church and in our lives. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot and you will not Do enough good to earn righteousness before God on your own. Only through Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished through His perfect righteousness, through His sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross for sinners, can you find redemption and forgiveness of sins. Look to Him. Rest in Him. Rejoice in Him. God will not look at your good and say, good enough, come on in. But he will look to Christ. And he will see whether or not you've been cleansed by his blood and clothed by his righteousness. Friends, we need a Savior, and none of us are that Savior. But Jesus is. You know, while he may not have washed his hands for dinner, he did everything we needed. Everything we needed as he went to the cross so that we all can be washed and welcomed to his table. And that, friends, is good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your kindness to us in grace by sending your son Jesus into this world to be our redeemer, to be our savior, to be our hope, to be our righteousness. Father, would you convict us of our pharisaical ways, of where we're depending upon certain actions, even good things, even commands in your word, where we're depending upon those kinds of things to make us right with you. Help us to realize that the only way to be right with you is through Christ. And then as a result of that relationship being secured through him, that we would live a life of favor and obedience to you, growing in grace and knowledge, living as your people, reflecting your character in this world. 
Forgive us, Lord, when we have confused this, when we have leaned upon our own understanding and not yours. Forgive us when we've been legalistic and judgmental towards others. And help us, Lord, to be a people of your grace because of your goodness and kindness to us through Christ. Would you speak to us this day, Lord, and cause us to respond in ways that would be pleasing to you this day. Help us, Lord, to hear this word, to respond to it in faith, and to give you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.